This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, like the postman, always knocks twice. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me as always is a nearby Doc Mahanti. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you? I'm very well. Now, we're coming to you from last week, believe it or not. We're actually recording this the week before you'll hear it because, Doc, you'll be away and I'll be away. So yes. we're gonna, we don't want to leave our listeners without some Motley Fool goodness this week. So we're going to tip into the Motley Fool mailbag. We have a bumper mailbag this week. We've got some good questions, some good comments that we're going to get your thoughts on, Doc. And I'll add some of my thoughts because, mm-hmm. frankly, I'm an opinionated bastard and I like to do those sort of things. So I will. Uh, and we'll be back with you next week live with some other good stuff. In fact, we've got a special guest next week. So stay tuned and uh, you'll be able to hear that. But for this week, Doc, we're going to start with a few questions. Now, we've got one question from Rick from Adelaide. And Rick says, Hi, Fools. Love the podcast. Listen every week. Thank you, Rick. We appreciate your your kind words. He's got a question about short-term investing, mate. He says, We have sold our family home and are renting for one to two years and saving for a larger deposit. I want to invest our savings in the interim to maximize the return whilst ensuring there is no chance of a loss. What would you guys suggest? Perhaps an ETF or a combination of ETFs? Now, the first thing we should say, as always, is this show only gives general advice. We can't give personal advice, Rick, so we can't tell you what's right for your situation. But broadly, Doc, for a, for, for a member, a listener, a reader who asked us that sort of question, so again, he's going to rent for one to two years and save for a larger deposit, and he wants to invest in the interim to maximize the return while ensuring there is no chance of loss. Is an ETF the right solution? Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, r- thanks, Rick, for the question. Uh, we love your questions. Um, I would say in this case, uh, investing the money in the market is probably the wrong thing to do. Aren't we a share we, investing mob? Oh, we are, but you know. But there's going to be an ETF somewhere for it, surely. Um, <laughs> so there, there might be an ETF somewhere that, you know, that allows you some bond return, bond-like <laughs> returns or something like that. But that, you know, some esoteric, uh, uh, something esoteric that gives you <laughs> uh, like a cash, uh, like a term deposit-like return. But it kind of uh, seems to uh, defeat yeah. the purpose. Yes, yeah, so it defeats the purpose, I think. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, we right? Uh, and I think the same answer holds. The If you need the money in the next Let's say three years. That's mm-hmm. you know, that's how I invest. Any money that I need in the next three years, I would not put in the market. Hang on, uh, you're 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 almost fully invested in shares. Why would you not be in the market? Well, think, is the market going to crash next two years? Is that what you're thinking? The market could crash any time. <laughs> so hang on, will or it could? What are you saying here? It could. Okay. I don't know when it will crash. If okay. I knew when it it will crash, then it would be fantastic. <laughs> you sell everything, right? I, I would sell exactly one second before it crashes. <laughs> and, and then, then buy at the bottom and make a fortune. Well, and buy at the bottom and make a fortune. Easy. How hard is that? If, 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 if that was possible, <laughs> I would... I don't know where I would be. I'd be in Mars, maybe. All right. So let's 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 not send you to Mars just yet, dude. We want you here at home. Yeah. So so let's say that let's say that Rick uh, hasn't got the 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 ultimate crystal ball and can't mm. say that. Yeah. Your your point is that you, we just don't know when the next crash is coming. Yeah, because we don't know where the crash is coming, and and I think you know he's saving for a bigger house, and he's this is a deposit for the house. Right. What we don't what we. I wouldn't tell anyone to do is don't put your deposit for your house that you you know you're looking to buy in the next couple of years in 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 the market in a way that you know if if the market drops by twenty percent mm. you know the market the market does fall like you know about nine ten percent every what one in three years or so right right and 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 maybe you find a dream house and at that time the market has you know taken a drop yep. in which case then you wouldn't be able to buy that dream house so given that you have a specific purchase that you want to make. Um, I wouldn't put that market, uh, that money into the market. Um, yeah, 
That, that's what I would do. Um, you know, again, he should talk to an advisor, of course, financial of course. advisor, to, for 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 advice. But yeah, that that would be my take. I think it's I think it's very sound. I tend to I tend to agree. I have to say, I think as you rightly point out, the market does fall. Well, here's the thing about averages, right? The averages are averages by definition, but it doesn't mean it works like clockwork. So the market falls on average ten percent about once every three years, yeah. but it could go six years and then fall 20% on one year, or exactly. it could fall 10% two years in a row. Yeah. Um, there is nothing about the history of the market that suggests there is any way you can, despite what the chart readers would say, pull a pattern out of out of investing and try and work out where shares are likely to go next. You simply can't know. We know the long-term returns are very good. We have reason to believe that the the, the basis the, the basis for those returns, the, the very kind of harnessing of, of what I like to call democratic capitalism, the human desire to improve things, mm-hmm. is going to continue to grow and create value over over the over the medium and long term. Yeah. But one to two years is just way, way, way too short. If you'd invested if you'd if you'd sold the house Rick in two thousand and seven and then woken up two years later, your money, you probably lost a third of your money. Yeah. And you know what? Right then, if you're gonna say, well geez, I want to buy a house, you've either got to buy you've either got to buy a house that's effectively a third less, or you've got to basically say, I can't do it yet. And neither of those is necessarily great options. Yeah. Now if you've got it if you've got more time, if you if the one to two years is, is reasonably locked in, then Doc's advice is absolutely spot on. I've said to I've said to friends in the past, and again, I don't give them personal advice, but I give them general advice uh, that if uh, if they're looking at you know, if the time is flexible, if they can buy any time between the next two and five years, for example, yeah. then you know it doesn't really matter when you buy. Then you can kind of start to make some different choices. And if you're prepared to say, well, I'll invest in shares, and if the market falls in two years' time, we'll simply put off our purchase until the market recovers. Then you've got some different options available to you. But if you if your time frame is limited or relatively limited, and you don't have that absolute flexibility on time frame, then your money shouldn't be in the market, as Doc's already said. For any three years, I would even say if it's a house deposit, it's literally you need the absolute capital. I'd even go out to five years. Basically, if you want, as you say, no chance of loss, then frankly, I mean, there is there is nothing like that. Right? There is no there is no possible investment that has no chance of loss. But you want to minimise as much as you can the chance of loss. If that's absolutely your approach, then frankly, cash in the bank, term deposits with a government guaranteed financial institution. So think about our major or even our regional banks. If the government's backing it, I mean, the government could always go broke. But those are so remote as to be effectively impossible. But they're still, it's not it's not totally impossible. So we never want to say anything is completely risk free. There is no such thing. But to the extent that you want to minimise to the absolute minimum your chance of loss, then a government guaranteed term deposit, as boring as it sounds, and frankly as low return as it will be is absolutely your best place to be if your number one objective is firstly no loss and then secondly on top of that how do I maximize my return go for the best possible term deposit you can have over your chosen time frame with a government guaranteed bank anything else to add on that one doc no I don't think it sound very sound very good Oh, it's always I, I like when you agree with me, mate. Doesn't happen very often, but I, but when it happens, I like to highlight it because it's important. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. We uh, we got a tweet during the week from Sam Evans. Now, I, I I'm a bit of a prolific tweeter, Doc, as 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 some of our listeners may know. You can get me at at tmf scott p. The Motley Fool, Scott Phillips. So TMF Scott P. Not very, not very imaginative. Where can they get you on Twitter, Doc? I'm just at Anirban Mahanti. Oh, see, that's what that's the advantage. Of, I'm, Scott Phillips wasn't available. I couldn't get any of the Scott Phillipses. I had to go with something mm. a bit different. Mm. Anirban Mahanti. All right. So that's as it as it's uh, as it sounds. But I will spell it for our listeners: A N I R B A N M A N A H A N T I. Anirban Mahanti. So you can get us both there. And Sam did. Now, I, I tweeted during the week and I said, so So firstly, we had a, there was a tweet, stick with this while I describe this. So Peter Fitzsimons, the, the ex-Wallaby and, and sports writer, uh, he, uh, 
I like this. So he, he's he's finding some old Australian expressions. And he says, I was chatting to a lovely old bloke from up Moree Way. He pointed out the old scientist on the other side of the room. He just chatted to him and he said, he could give you the square root of a jam jar and not know how to get the lid off. And I thought that was kind of cool, right? That, that kind of idea that he knows all of the stuff but can't quite make it work. Now, mm. as true or untrue as that might be, as, as apocryphal as the story might sound, I then followed that up because it, it really rung a bell for me, Doc, when it comes to investors. And I said... This describes way too many investors, too smart for their own good. It makes them favor action and intellect over what actually works. Trying so hard to be intellectually right and clever, they somehow struggle to find out and do Mm. what works. Now, Sam says, maybe you could discuss this on your podcast, so I will. He said next week's high horse, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that because I want, I want a different one. Um, he said, I can't understand why so many investors focus on quant, in other words, numbers, mm. rather than qualitative analysis. Investing is more of an art than maths, mm. but this isn't taught at university. Now, I think I, I wouldn't say more an art than maths. I'd probably say equal parts art and science if it was, if it was my choice, but I won't, I won't quibble with Sam. He's made, he's made a good point. I'm going to quickly just give a, a bit of a thought, and I want to get your thoughts, Doc, as to how you approach it. I, I want to try and put that, my, my kind of tweeting context there's, there's, we kind of know from from the greats before us of different genres and styles. Everywhere from David Gardner, who I know is a big influence on you, Doc, one of one of the best growth investors either of us have ever seen. Uh, I'm a big Warren Buffett fan. Also, quite uh, I admire David Gardner and, and his brother Tom, uh, as we both do. So you know, there's some great investors that we've been able to learn from and and basically kind of imitate. Right? There's not there's no points for originality in investing. Imitating the greats is the best possible way to put the odds in your favour. And we kind of know that as a result, things like buying and holding, not not trading too frequently, not trying to be too clever, finding great long-term investments, not worry about the short-term volatility, all that stuff we kind of know, right? And then I see time after time after time, otherwise smart people who get so caught up in the intellectual exercise of trying to work out what might happen in the short term with this or that or the other, and they make all these trades and kind of... They're so caught up in the intellectual thing. Our, our kind of part colleague, former colleague, Joe Mager, who now runs Lakehouse Capital, uh, introduced me to the quote, do you want to be right or do you want to make money? Mm. And it's kind of that sense you can spend so long trying to be intellectually clever and try and think through all of these ridiculously detailed theories and analyses and, and buy this and buy that and sell this and sell that. Mm. Or you can kind of just buy good stuff and wait. And, I, and I, that, that's the bit that gets me. So many investors who frankly do know better and should know better, but kind of can't help themselves because they're so busy trying to be smart, they somehow forget to let mm. the kind of old rules work and, and make them some money. This is a fantastic, I love this because, um, yeah, investing to me is definitely part art, part part mm. science. Mm. That, that is now you're a scientist by background, so give me, give me your perspective on this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a scientist by background, but you know what I used to do is uh, computer performance modeling and okay. the best book on that subject. I don't even understand the term, let alone what you do, but so try me anyway. It's, it's, it's relatively <laughs> simple. So you take any complex system, like say the internet or you know something on the internet, yeah. and you, you develop a model for it. Right, okay. Right? okay. And, and you try to understand the system. Okay. Right? And you find bottlenecks and you try to improve the bottlenecks. That's why you're the PhD, by the way, and I'm on the lowly bachelor, but okay. keep, keep going. Yeah. So so the best book on that subject yep. had a beautiful title. It was called The Art and Science of Computer Performance Modeling. Hey, nice. All and right. Art was put first. <laughs> That's, that, I, that is brilliant. I reckon that, it, that would surprise almost everybody listening. How, how is that received in the scientific community? It, it, it was one of the, you know, the most read books in that subject. Wow, okay. So, so uh, I think there's something to that. And, the, mm-hmm. and there's another, another quote I'll, I'll use. It's from a, a statistician called uh, George Box. George Box, okay. Okay. And the quote is it's really nice. He says that all models are wrong. Yeah. Only some are useful. 
Okay. Right. Okay. And, and, and See, that, I'm, I'm going to say very quickly before I let you go on, most people listening who aren't scientists by trade would assume that scientists are kind of like mathematicians. They like rules and, and theories and kind of models, and, and that's, they kind of explain the world in a very logical, rational sense. Even old-style classical economy, mm. economists, sorry, right? it's, it's that sense of there's a model for everything. There's, a, there's a, a structure and a process and a flow for everything. It doesn't require much, much art. So, frankly, it surprises me, and I imagine it would surprise most of our listeners. Give us a look on the inside, then. Why, why, why have we got the wrong impression? And more importantly, how are scientists incorporating art and science? So, I, I think the, the issue is that, you know, we, we look at things like physics, mm. Which, which have hard laws, yep. right? And, gravity. And, and gravity, yep. you know. And, or, e equals mc squared. Yeah, e equals mc squared. That's all or, I know. You know <laughs> or, or, you know, Newton's first law, second law, and, and so on and so forth, right? There's a law of thermodynamics somewhere, but yes, I couldn't tell what it is. Of thermodynamics. Oh, right, right. It, so many different laws. <laughs> That's my entire scientific I, I, understanding I, I in one people have become used to, used to the fact that there are certain uh you know science means there should be laws right right and and that's not how things work how things work and and what many complex things involve human behavior where i think you know you can't really you know box it into a particular model right okay so you make an assumption right so the you know the rational human being assumption that economists make right it's made it's not that economists don't know that, that that's not true mm. <laughs> but it is a, it's a good enough ex- assumption to make to understand a system and to get some understanding about you know what happens in a market for example a market is efficient if everybody is rational right, right? and 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 then of course they'd realize that the market is not efficient because not everybody is rational right but it's a good starting point mm. to study something mm. so it's, i think you know, that's a very in- interesting point but you know back to what you were talking about uh, you know uh, people's desire to be uh, overconfident yes. or, or you know, do quantitative things. Over clever, I would say. Just that sense of kind of like, it's almost, it's almost the intellectual challenge that rather than do the easy things and, and do them yeah. well, so, some people seem to prefer to do the hard things, maybe because it proves something to themselves out of its ego or intellect or something, but it's kind of like, you do the easy things, easy, easy things well. You mentioned compound interest or compounding last in our last podcast, and and some sense of if you just let compounding do its thing, you don't have to do much more, right? Like exactly. it's helpful to beat the market by a little bit because you're compounding larger numbers is, is obviously better, and we we both try and beat the market, and so far so good for both of our services. Uh, but but y- there's so many people who lose to the market because they're trying to be too clever, right? Exactly, and, and I think the, the the thing is that. Um, People like action, right? So when you're when you're trying to do, you know, inaction is actually probably right. the best thing in the market, right? I mean, you know, be slow. <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> always do something because if you're always right. doing something, it, it it can be counterproductive because you're going to make many more decisions than you actually need to make, right? And and uh, I, I like this thing that you know David Gardner wrote a wrote a commentary many years ago, and he called it um, anti confidence. If I'm if I'm not anti confidence, okay. Anti-confidence. Tell me about that. So what he's basically saying is that you know he tries never to be very confident and wh- what he does is he finds good companies good ideas you know run by good leaders you know right, leaders right. doing innovative things right uh, tries to find the lead husky mm. and he says well this is an investment let's make one and then let it ride mm. you find another one and you make one and you let it ride you don't try to second guess you don't try to you know oh, see something is going on this quarter this half this year right you let it ride and over time the the best ideas will win and they will win big and he you know he will say that his portfolio becomes bigger mm. uh, because the the winners they increase many fold and they become bigger by by the by the definition that they were successful right. and the ones that were not successful become insignificant because yeah, you lose yeah. money on them but it doesn't matter 
Because what, what matters is that we can lose at most 100% right. of our money in one position. Mm-hmm. But we can be up 10x, 100x. And he is up 100x yeah, on many, yeah. many, you know, many investments, actually. at least two now that I know of, Amazon and, and Netflix, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if you get a couple of those, they will make up. It's kind of all you need, right? It's probably, that's, that's all you need. Yeah. I and mean, maybe that, that's enough to wipe out, you know, several of you know, the bad ideas, mm. right? So, so not doing anything and not trying to second guess. And in, along the way, for example, Amazon, you could have guessed, oh, they're going to fail here. They're going to fail there. They could fail here. Maybe eBay is going to kill them. Maybe Walmart is going to kill them. Right. Hmm. I think there's a couple of things there. The first is to your point, and this is something we try and look. You know, I used to have an old an old boss, uh, Kristen Holgate, who was the CEO at Blackmores, and she used to say, uh, "Even when you thought you've told people enough, you haven't. So keep telling them." And, and one of the so we'll say this a lot in this podcast over the next well, hopefully years to come, uh, and that is that when we think about portfolios, it's so so important to think about your 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 portfolio as a group of stocks collected together that give you an average return. If you are trying to avoid loss in every single company. A, we go back to kind of the original point from Rick about we must stay in cash. And then B, a failure of an individual investment is not a failure of your investment style. And to your point, Doc, you know, D- David Gardner would say he's had more failures than anyone in the company, I think, from his kind of favorite line. I'm not entirely sure if that's entirely true, but it's close enough to be, you know, worthwhile for our purposes. So more failures than anybody, but also the highest return of anybody at the company. And be, that's specifically because of that idea that he's, he's, he's kind of playing – he's investing according to his own system and that system throws out some losers and it throws out some winners and the winners win big in a much greater way than the losers lose. And so the maths of that is simply just very straightforward. You simply make more from your winners than you lose with your losers and the result is you end up with more money overall. And, and he's done that just to such an extent that he's delivered a really strong result. Um, I think there's some, there's some value there. And he's done it largely, as you say, mate, by by buying companies and very, very rarely selling. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't know the numbers. I'd say 80 plus percent of his recommendations ever for the last 15 or so years are still... Buys Active recommendations, or, yeah, either buys or holds. Right, he's, right. he's a he's a reluctant seller. Right, he's, he's a lot like Warren Buffett when it comes to you know holding companies go. for the long run. I will I will happily throw my lot in with both of them. I hate selling because it's it, there's a whole lot of reasons why we should probably do this a separate a separate piece. But if you sell, you got to buy something else. You got to get two decisions right rather than just yep. one. Yeah, um, the chance that you might be wrong in the first place. Frankly, if you've done your research properly in, originally, you shouldn't need to sell. And again, if you do, there's every good chance that stock goes on to be a market beater anyway. A la my domino story from last week where I'm still staring in the barrel of, of, of giving up a, a three-bagger after making 100% and feel like I was a genius. So I, I've learned from that in particular, frankly. Um, I'm very, very, very reluctant to sell. And some of our biggest winners at, at a multi-full share advisor in Australia too have been, we have one 10-bagger and a, I think a nine, eight or nine-bagger, a, a couple of two and threes, basically from that lesson and from mm-hmm. lesson, lessons from the gardeners and others of basics. And look, maybe it's overvalued, maybe it's not, but gee, if it's a good quality company run by good people you like, there's every chance it'll keep going and keep being successful. Exactly. I love that. I'll finish with one quick quote from the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, who says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think there's some lessons there for investors it's a beautiful as well. quote. Love it. Good, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now I'm going to go back to one of your... Oh, it's like one of your favorite topics, mm. but it's your favorite topic, kind of because you don't like the company. So I'm going to get, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you have your say, but then I'm going to wrap it up myself. So Samuel Craig uh, sent me a, a direct message, and said, "Hey, I feel like you guys were very down on Telstra in a recent podcast. Just curious, has your sentiment changed after the investor presentation? I, like you, seem to have mistimed my entry point. 
Now, Doc, I don't imagine your view on Telstra's changed in the last week or so. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. So, t- this is for Samuel and, and anybody else who is a Telstra <laughs> shareholder. I'll um, be kind. Uh, be kind. So, so I'll, I'll say this. We like our listeners. So, so, <laughs> I love our listeners and I'll, we love our members. We and, do. And, and, and I'll say this. You know, I might sound negative on Telstra, but I don't mean that this company is going away or is disappearing. This is one of those dead companies that isn't really dead, it's, is it? It's one of those dead companies <laughs> that's not really dead. I, I think it's Telstra is is a good company to hold um, at, 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 a correct, at, at a good price. It's a right. good company to hold for the dividends it's going to return to you. Right. Um, you know, if you're looking for franking credits and dividends, and that's you know an important component of your uh, your portfolio, then it's it's a perfect fit for that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a growth investor, so I I don't invest in companies that are paying me six percent dividends. Yep. But, um, I with respect to Telstra, I think what had happened is the market had become the market was starting to value Telstra as if it's like you know a, a growth company with significant growth, and 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 I think that was where I think things went wrong, and and maybe the market is now <laughs> thinking Telstra mm. is dead, <laughs> it is not. So, right, right, right. So uh, you say it's dead, so it must be dead, right? So, so that, that yeah. So okay, <laughs> bear that in mind. The 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 whole industry, telco, is is very competitive, yeah. and um, you know, and I think both you know, TPG and Telstra they could both do well. Mm. Um, I think the price matters, and and right now the price is low. I think there's still um, this. I think there's there's still rough seas here, especially with with what's going to happen. I think the main thing for me is what's going to happen with 5G. Yeah. And if something hap- and if 5G becomes the major broadband provider, th- that could actually be a good thing for Telstra. Yep. Right? And and it could reduce its its dependence on NBN uh, for broadband. For well, they've example. got a pretty good lead in 5G, well, in 4G anyway. There's exactly. every chance they'll be the leader in 5G. Yeah. TPG breathing down its neck. But to the extent that people kind of go mobile rather than NBN, yeah. because of the way the NBN pricing and margins go for Telstra and the other, the other retailers, in fact, the resellers of the NBN, yeah. you're, kind of, you're going to make more money having your own network than using the NBNs, right? Exactly, and and I think this is why I bought five G up. I think eventually, you know, the NBN could be the big white elephant. I mean, I mean, it could right. be that we go completely mobile for everything, and it can be easier for everybody. You can bundle your your home broadband with your uh, with your mobile smartphone plan, right? And, right. And it would be fantastic. Yeah, so, yeah. so I I think Telstra's mobile advantage is should not be. Um, you know, uh, written off, and and I think there's a price at which the company is is a good buy. Uh, I think it's probably getting there. It's been sold off a lot. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, you know, it's not a growth investors thing, but for for the value investor, for the uh, for the person looking for income, bit of tax effective income, uh, nice franking ta- credits. Ta- yeah, tax effective yep. income. This yep. is this is a good stock, maybe. Yeah. Look, that, that's my take. That's very conciliatory of you, Doc. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. I will, I will quote this. I will, I will take this as a snippet and I'll put it on as my ringtone on my phone. Um, I, look, I, yeah, I think You're look, welcome. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I, Samuel's right to some degree. I did let you. I did let you run away with your uh, your why. I, why I'm worried about Telstra um, thesis, and that, that's a validly held view. And I think what we like to do at the Motley Fool and on this podcast in particular is present different views where we have them. Um, generous, you know, kind of uh, complete agreement is not much fun to listen to, and, and kind of you know, it's it's the considering of different. Different views um, that that really makes that really makes the difference here. I think it's you know looking for encouraging the debate it makes us all smarter and better investors. I, I will say to to your point, Doc, and, and to Samuel's question. Look, I, I was wrong about Telstra in the sense that I agree with you about five G, Doc, and I had expected over time that the mobile business would grow 
quickly enough to offset the declining business in the fixed line. That was horribly wrong in, in hindsight. Um, the share price t- tells us that story. They simply couldn't grow mobile as fast as I thought they could. I don't, don't know it was necessarily a company problem. I think it's partly that. Probably partly, frankly, just an analysis mistake from me. So, you know, we make mistakes. We like to own up to them. That was a mistake from me. Uh, I, I, sh- I, I should have thought more clearly and more cleverly, uh, more intelligently about what was likely to happen. I missed that one entirely. Um, that being said, I, I think that the theme is still the right one. I still expect that 5G will do well. I do agree with you, mate. I, I've always been a, for all the NBN stuff, and we get lots of people whinge about the NBN, and yes, the NBN is kind of crap, but but more broadly, I think the government's right not to sink too much cash into it because there's a very real possibility that the future is mobile rather than fixed line, at least to the same degree that they're investing in a, on a per household basis to provide it. If in If in three years, five years, seven years, a decent proportion of us are using are using mobile rather than fixed MBN. To your point, it becomes a white elephant, and and any government, and this isn't a political comment, more a, a governance comment of whatever political stripe, would, would be best not to have spent a squillion dollars on that because if mobile is the future, then you know no point, no point laying more railway tracks right when we're all flying to Mars. So um, there's some there's some there's some value there, I think. So yeah, look, I, I and for what, for what's worth, I think Telstra still is a buy. I think it's a market beater from here. It won't be a growth investment, as you say. Uh, I don't think it'll be necessarily one that will uh, will knock the socks off. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be trying to find a ten bagger investment with with Telstra. Uh, but I do think if you're particularly a conservative investor, an income investor, as you say, Doc, or simply want to beat the market, I do expect Telstra to beat the market from here. Um, but again, nothing is nothing is certain. So that's that's our view. Uh, Samuel, apologies for seeming a bit too downbeat on it last time. Uh, I'm still a fan. It's still a buy, but it's not exactly unchallenged. For what it's worth, I also do like TPG. And I think for my money, um, both those are active recommendations at Motley Fool Share Advisor. I like both companies. It's possible one will win or to some degree at the expense of the other. Not necessarily the other one will lose, but I think either of those or maybe both in some combination win the win the broadband war or sorry, the mobile broadband war, I should say. Uh, so I like both. I think it's worth having both in a, in a diversified portfolio. You know, you know um, I'll just add one thing. I think if, if there's a war and we think that, you know, there's going to be tough competition, I think what might be happening is the bigger players are going to squeeze the smaller ones. Right, right. Is, is my take. So I think, I think, you know, these two companies can do well. Right, and and uh, yeah, even if you, know, you get a one percent beat over the market, that's that's pretty good with the dividend that you get and the franking credits that you get with Telstra. So totally. I'm not completely downbeat on Telstra, though. You know, when I call it, it's dead. It's, it's not really dead. It, dead basically means that it's not the growing. other dead. Yeah, it's 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 the other dead. It's not growing at thirty percent or forty percent, and and therefore it's not my kind of thing. But um, yeah, good man, good man. Get more motley fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple m. All right, now mate, I'm going to speaking. We, we talked about David Gardner a little bit already. I'm going to take a leaf out of David Gardner's book, and I, I've got a question here. The question comes from Scott P. Mm. Of, of of a company called TMF, and I, mm. I, I, it sounds very familiar. I can't quite put my finger on it, um, but but Scott P. Scott P. Is, it looks like a smart bloke. He's a handsome guy from the photo I can see here. Uh, devilishly handsome, very smart, thoughtful, a good sense of humour, a really lovely guy from the look of it. Anyway, he asks, Doc, why on earth? Do you love lower share prices? What is wrong with you that you don't cheer on higher prices? Every time I say, great, the market's up, you say, oh, that's a shame. And when I say, oh, mate, the market's down, you're like, yes, that's great. Why do you hate me? Why do you hate the fact that people make money from a rising market? I thought you are smart, but you're maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you're entitled to be wrong, at least on one of those two counts. Exactly. We'll, let, we'll let listeners decide which one you're wrong about. Okay. So, so, okay. so this is from the perspective of someone <laughs> who hopes to invest, let's say, for another 20, 30, maybe longer, depending on how long I can live. <laughs> um, if I'm just being very greedy and, 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 uh, and I'm saying that if somebody wants to invest, continue investing, 
then what do you really want, right? I mean, I want lower share prices because I whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, mate. I can see a whole lot of crappy shares I've got that have fallen. You want those ones? No, I don't want. I They're want fallen. I want great businesses at fantastic discounts, <laughs> and <laughs> I I am happy to buy more of them as they become even more discounted. It's it's. But it's, you're losing money, mate. If the shares price was from ten dollars to five dollars, you, you've lost half your money. It's great. How I'm, can that be possibly I great? Can, it's fantastic because I don't need the money now. <laughs> if I'm investing in money, I don't need the money now, and I'm happy for irrational selling <laughs> uh, to give me uh, that jeans or whatever that was, you know the jeans equivalent company right. um, at a discount. You know who doesn't like to buy a jeans at half the price, right? If you you know your favorite jeans are selling for half the price, wouldn't you buy it? So. Um, yeah, if my favorite company is selling for half the price, I would buy it instantly. And, you know, I know that over the long term, my company will deliver, or at least I believe that on average, the companies I own will deliver me good returns. And therefore, if I can buy them at a lower price, I will have a much higher chance of getting a much better return than I would if the share prices are going up. But if the shares are going down, mate, obviously something's wrong with the company. Surely when the shares are down, it's time to sell. Not buy more. Well, you know, so the falling share price got to mean that there's something wrong with the company. Surely, yeah, surely. So, so when uh, you know one of my favorite companies, Apple shares, was selling oh, for, for ten dollars, uh, some you know ten years ago, but it was something was definitely wrong with the company, right? You know, today the shares are at what hundred one one hundred. Oh, all right, all right. Like yes, you made so, money in Apple. Fine, fine, fine. So I don't know. I mean, you know, shares go down for the reason. People, people do crazy things. The people do crazy things. The market does crazy things. Uh, you know, people remember people are not rational. And you're happy to buy from crazy people is what you tell me. I, I am perfectly happy to buy from crazy people who are, <laughs> you know, if somebody's going to sell me my favorite company for half the price, I will take it. Mate, you're not a Ben Graham fan necessarily. At least you don't follow, you don't invest like Ben Graham. But I think even you would be able to tell me the Ben Graham quote that goes along with the uh, the, the sometimes falling share prices. Oh, so you're talking about the the the, the voting machine? That's the one. Yeah. Hit, hit, give us give us the yeah. give us the quick summary of that and, and how that kind of comes into play. Right. Over the short term, the market is essentially a voting machine, mm-hmm. but over the long term, it's a weighing machine. Ah. So I like the weighing machine aspect of the market. <laughs> <laughs> so your your point really isn't that you, you're not saying every time any share price goes in, you should buy more of that particular no, company. No. What you're saying is that if there's if there's an opportunity to say buy a company's, if you get a company whose shares have fallen for whatever reason, as long as the future remains bright, and you, to your point about jeans, if if they're crappy secondhand jeans with mud stains and blood all yeah. over them, you're not going to buy them just because they're half price. Exactly. But if they're really good quality jeans that happen to be half price because some shop somewhere is desperate to make a, a its budget, and so it's selling off as much as it can for as cheap as it can. Yeah. Or it's closing down. It's closing down. Right. It's closing down. You know, half thirty. You know, it's all half price. So, yeah. and, the, and the voting machine really comes down to the emotions of the market. So, you know, things like so, the GFC, for example, a great time. For as much as you know, two thousand seven, the market was riding high. Two thousand eight, nine, everyone, well, everyone, the, the markets crashed. People are miserable. In hindsight, and even for those of us who kind of felt like it at the time, that was the time to be buying, not selling. Right. So. As the market fell 40%, some people saying, the market's down, this is terrible, we're all going to lose money. Others were saying, well, the businesses are still the same and the market's now offering them to me at half price. If I still like Commonwealth Bank or Woolies or Flight Center or pick your company, then why wouldn't, if you, if you, liked, it, if you liked the business 12 months ago at a higher price, why wouldn't you like it even more now? Because you can buy more, more shares for the same money, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, th- I think I do, uh, I'll caveat this by saying that I do, I do believe that, you know, for people who are retired, for example, and who are living off their uh, um, portfolios, it, it is, it, it hurts, and which is why we said, you know, you should, any money that you need over the near term, you shouldn't have in the stock market. But um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, if most of your nest egg is in the in the market and market falls, it's going to hurt. And, you know, even our, you know, it, it's a mixed emotion. When the, mm-hmm. when the market goes down and I look at my portfolio, well, it looks red. I don't like it. But I like the fact that if I can invest some money this month, mm. that's great. So, yeah. All right. And then for, for an investor who's kind of, so let's answer, the, let's answer the unasked question. What's the difference between one that goes down and stays down, one that goes down and bounces back? How, how you know? You, so, so company A and company B both fall twenty five percent tomorrow. Hmm. How do you go about working out which one is on the on a road to oblivion, and which one's just in you know kind of sold off on some sort of market emotive kind of overreaction and is destined to come back? I, I mean, so in company specific scenarios, this is this is harder, right? But I mean, you know, the GFC is a good example. Well, if if you have a financial crisis or some sort of emo emotion-driven um, collective mar- market action where everything is selling for a discount, right? That, that's that's a good time to buy. It's hard to buy at those times because you think like you know, the whole market. I, I mean, this is the way I rationalize it. I said, well, if the market, if everything in the market is, is falling mm-hmm. uh, and you're not able to buy, that basically means that you don't have any belief in the financial system, right? If you don't have any belief in the financial <laughs> system, it does right. not matter where you keep your money. <laughs> right, right, if right. you can keep it in your bank, all the banks are going to be You might as well give it up. Okay. You might as well give it up. Okay. So if, if you are a positive person and you believe that, you know, the systems we've got in the, you know, the democratic institutions we've got in the financial systems we've built over the last 50 years, 60, mm-hmm. 70, 80 years, they're going to be there. People are going to be innovative and they're going to build new things and we're going to go to Mars or <laughs> Moon. If you believe in the future, yes. then you should, at that time, not worry about great companies. So yeah, if it is a good company, a great, you know, even better, a great company selling yep. for a discount, buy it. If it is a company which has got uh, company-specific issues and therefore the share price has fallen 50%, don't buy it. Uh, at least that's what I do. I mean, you could do cigar butt investing and you think that there's something there, you know, turn around and so on. But that's right, not right, what right. I'm talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about turn around, something that has fallen because there's something wrong with the company or some specific company-specific problem. Right, right, right. Those are much harder to get right. I, I'm just saying that, you know, once in a while... It's a market is, overreaction. Yeah, market overreaction is there. Right. right. At a smaller scale, we see that happen on, you know, with earnings and so, and so on and so forth with companies, but those are always on a smaller scale. They're not like, you know, you don't get the 30%, 40% opportunities. Very good. I'm going to give two examples as we as we go towards the close of the podcast. The first is Flight Center, which fell from, I want to say, 35 bucks to about $3 during the GFC. Tell me how much it is now. 60 bucks, give or take, among friends. So if you bought at $3? Eh, 20 bagger or so. That's not bad, is it? That is. And again, no, for, for bad, no good reason, bad. right? This was yeah. this was this was the market. I mean, there are there are always reasons to to worry uh, about any company at any point. But there was it was both SARS and the internet were supposed to destroy flight centers business. And again, a decade later, twenty bag is not bad. The other one is the the best example I've ever had. I mean, there are there are only there's only one Amazon, right? But Amazon went from a split adjusted price of nine dollars up to nine. No, sorry, three dollars up to ninety, and then all the way back to nine dollars, lost ninety percent of its value. That nine dollars stock. Now fifteen hundred odd dollars a share. Sixteen hundred. That's an astonishing return, right? And so again, you could have at any point between ninety and nine said the market's falling, share prices are falling, this is terrible, I'm getting out, and that would have been kind of on the face of it logical, right? Because who wants to lose money? The reality was, if you knew and saw the value of the company or the flight center or Amazon, realized there was value there, were happy to basically let time do its thing and wait for the market to wake up. You had a lot of money as a result. Mm-hmm. Mate, you've almost stolen my entire high horse. I have to tell you, but. Because I can't help myself, I'm going to do it anyway. Get on. And it's <laughs> again, we're lacking Liam, and we're lacking the horse. Uh, we're lacking the. the <laughs> there we go. Doc, that was terrible. But thanks for making the effort. Well, I at least I tried. <laughs> you did. Yeah. I was, I was, we haven't got the coconuts from Monty Python either. So I, I will. I will mount the horse with a very quick one this time, and it kind of stems from that last point, mate. The 
Investors are a funny breed, and we talk about long-term and short-term all the time, right? Here's the thing. If you buy shares, you are buying those shares because you think the market is wrong about the price, yes? Um, you expect yeah. the price to go up over time, right? You're not yep. buying them because they're already fully valued. You're buying them because you think the future is going to be a higher price than it is yep. now. Now, the problem is if the market already believed you, the price would already be higher. And so when people buy shares, they buy shares, and then the share price falls. And they say, oh, I bought those shares, and the share price fell. It kind of should. Because if you're going to buy a shares of a company that you think are mispriced, what you're really saying is the market is wrong about the value of this company. And so to all of a sudden expect just because I buy shares this morning that come Monday morning, the market's going to realize its mistake, realize how bright, smart, intelligent, good-looking I am, and all of a sudden re-rate the shares just because I bought them, it's kind of mad, right? So in some, in some ways, you know, we, even though we know the market goes up 10% a year on average, and even though we know there's the occasional fall, we should expect if we're buying individual stocks on the basis that the market is wrong, don't expect the market to come to your view all of a sudden straight away. It's the hardest thing for new investors to deal with because you buy shares for 100 bucks, they fall to 90 and you go, oh, this bloody share market things are ridiculous. And you buy a second company at 50 and the shares go to 45 and you think, oh, I'm not cut out to do this. That's kind of what should happen, right? More often than not, if the market, say, flight center at mm-hmm. any point between 30 and 3, and then quite frankly, for a decent amount of time after that stayed around those single digit levels, mm-hmm. it took a long time for the market to kind of come around and realize it was wrong. And during that time, it is testing. It is stressful. You are going to feel like you're wrong because the market, everyone else in the, in the investing world is saying, you bought the shares that we think suck mm-hmm. and the share price has fallen. And that is really, really hard to get used to. But if you can get anything into your heads as a result of this conversation, A, be long-term investors, and B, don't sweat the short-term. That's exactly what Doc was saying before about short-term negativity, even longer-term negativity. As long as the value of the company is really there and you can see something the market can't, that's exactly what you should be buying if you're trying to beat the market. In fact, if you want to beat the market, you have to do something different to the market by definition. That's exactly exactly the recipe. That's exactly the formula. By the same token, by the way, if you're not up for that, buy an index. You'll do your 10% a year. You'll compound your money, add regularly. You'll be be pretty rich, frankly, by the end of your life. Mm -hmm. But if you want to pick stocks, and we think you should because we think you can do it well, just be prepared for that bad news, that pessimism, that that gut-wrenching, oh, God, I've made a horrible mistake. And if you do and you can see it through, I think you'll come out pretty well ahead. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what, what What might some people, you know, think about 10% is pretty good, but, you know, 10, 12% is even better. Right. right? You compound that. Exactly. And, exactly. and the, the difference is that 10% basically means your money doubles in seven years. Yep. And 12% means your money doubles in six years. And you, right. you take that over a long period of time, that actually makes a big difference. It does exactly. So, very quick maths over 42 years, you get an extra doubling yeah. if you're getting 12% rather than 10. So, you put that forward. Let's say you double your money to half a million dollars under one scenario. On the other scenario, you get a million dollars. It's, exactly. it's a massive, 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 massive difference. difference. Yeah. On that exciting and bright note, mate, we should wrap this up, I reckon. We should. Our special mailbag edition. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope next year, next week, sorry, treats you well, or this week when you're listening. We won't be here, but we trust that the podcast will go to you, and we trust that it will be enjoyable. As I said last week, if you do want to get in contact, please do. We love hearing your comments and questions, your feedback, your criticism if you have to, uh, because this, we, do this, we do this podcast for you. We like doing it. We enjoy it. We enjoy each other's company, but we're doing it because we're trying to spread a bit of foolishness a bit more broadly into the investing world. So please do get in touch at The Motley Fool au at anir Bain mahanti or at tmf scott p all on twitter or send us an email at info at fool.com.au well before you go and if you haven't already please subscribe to the triple m motley full money podcast through itunes or your favorite android podcast app and if you like what we're doing please give us a big five star rating preferably four if you must if you're very cruel but in this uber age five stars is the one way five, to go five five yeah five definitely five and uh, it, it, it does, it, like it helps give us feedback. It also means that more people can find the podcast because the, the Android app and, and the Apple app do uh, basically rank them on the basis of not, both the number of listeners and the ratings that people give it. So please give others a chance to find the podcast. 
we're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Until then, fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.